Hi guys, thanks for coming back to Classics and Chill. I am so lucky in a lot of ways that I've been unable to read to you guys in a couple of months. Um, My personal life has just blossomed with the most magnificent abundance and I found myself in a really happy family with um, a toddler who I get to love every day and a partner who makes me feel really safe and secure and so that's been a major transition you know this year I moved across the country and I I you know developed this magnificent and wonderful blessing and so I'm sorry uh, to have missed reading to you over the long cold winter I'm reading to you today from Highland Lakes New Jersey and I will tell you that that is a cold winter and um, we finally got to the other side of it and the lilacs are blooming on my property and I cannot wait for tomato season that's two months away and I've been having tons of talks lately about value about scarcity about currency and derivative value compared to use value real value perceived value and um, In having this conversation with my partner, I used the expression, who is John Galt? And it reminded me that um, it's time to revisit Atlas Shrugged. And so we're going to do part two of Atlas Shrugged. If you want to hear the first piece of this wonderful Ayn Rand work, um, you can listen to season two, episode one. But we have just gotten to the point where we meet the female protagonist and because she is such a force of nature let us not hesitate another moment so part two of atlas shrugged she sat at the window of the train her head thrown back One leg stretched across the empty seat before her. The window frame trembled with the speed of the motion. The pane hung over empty darkness and dots of light slashed across the glass as luminous streaks once in a while. Her leg, sculptured by the tight sheen of the stocking, its long line running straight over an arched instep to the tip of a foot in a high-heeled pump, had feminine elegance that seemed out of place in the dusty train car and oddly incongruous with the rest of her. She wore a battered camel's hair coat that had been expensive, wrapped shapelessly around her slender, nervous body. The coat collar was raised to the slanting brim of her hat. A sweep of brown hair fell back, almost touching the line of her shoulders. Her face was made of angular planes, the shape of her mouth, clear-cut, a sensual mouth held closed by an inflexible precision. She kept her hands in the coat pockets, her posture taut as she resented immobility and unfeminine as if she were conscious of her own body and that it was a woman's body. 
She sat listening to the music. It was a symphony of triumph. The notes flowed up. They spoke of rising, and they were the rising itself. They were the essence and form of upward motion. They seemed to embody every human act and thought that had ascent as its motive. It was a sunburst of sound, breaking out of hiding and spreading open. It had the freedom of release and the tension of purpose. It swept space clean and left nothing but the joy of an unobstructed effort. Only a faint echo within the sounds spoke of that from which the music had escaped, but spoke in laughing astonishment at the discovery that there was no ugliness or pain and that there never had to be. It was the song of immense deliverance. She thought for just a few moments while this lasts, it is all right to surrender completely, to forget everything and just permit yourself to feel, she thought, let go, drop the controls. This is it. Somewhere on the edge of her mind, under the music, she heard the sound of train wheels, they knocked in an even rhythm, every fourth knock accented as if stressing a conscious purpose. She could relax because she heard the wheels. She listened to the symphony thinking, this is why the wheels have to be kept going. This is where they're going. She had never heard that symphony before, but she knew it was written by Richard Halley. She recognized the violence and the magnificent intensity. She recognized the style of the theme. It was clear, complex, melodic, at a time when no one wrote melody any longer. She sat looking up at the ceiling of the car, but she did not see it, and she had forgotten where she was. She did not know whether she was hearing a full symphony orchestra or only the theme. Perhaps she was hearing the orchestration in her own mind. She thought dimly that there had been premonitory echoes of this theme in all of Richard Hawley's work through all the years of his long struggle to this day in his middle age when fame struck him suddenly and knocked him out. This, she thought, listening to the symphony had been the goal of his struggle. She remembered half-hinted attempts in his music, phrases that promised it, broken bits of melody that started but never quite reached it when Richard Halley wrote this, he... She sat up straight. When did Richard Halley write this? In the same instant, she realized where she was and wondered for the first time where that music came from. A few steps away, at the end of the car, a brakeman was adjusting the controls of the air conditioner. He was blonde and young. He was whistling the theme of the symphony. She realized that he had been whistling it for some times and that this was all she had heard. She watched him incredulously for a while before she raised her voice to ask, tell me please, what are you whistling? The boy turned to her. She met a direct glance and saw an open, eager smile as if he were sharing a confidence with a friend. She liked his face. Its lines were tight and firm. It did not have the look of those loose muscles evading the responsibility of a shape which she had learned to expect in people's faces. It's the Halle Concerto, he answered, smiling. Which one? The fifth. She let a moment pass. 
before she said slowly and very carefully. Richard Halley wrote only four concertos. The boy's smile vanished. It was as if he were jolted back to reality, just as she had been a few moments ago. It was as if a shutter were slammed down of what remained was a face without expression, impersonal, indifferent, and empty. Yes, of course, he said. I'm wrong. I made a mistake. Then what was it? Something I heard somewhere. Well, what? I don't know. Well, where did you hear it? I don't remember. She paused helplessly. He was turning away from her without further interest. It sounded like a Hallie theme, she said. But I know every note he's ever written, and he never wrote that. There was still no expression, only a faint look of attentiveness on the boy's face as he turned back to her and asked, You like the music of Richard Halley? Yes, she said. I like it very much. He considered her for a moment, as if hesitating. Then he turned away. She watched the expert efficiency of his movements as he went on working. He worked in silence. She had not slept for two nights, but she could not permit herself to sleep. She had too many problems to consider and not much time. The train was due in New York early in the morning. She needed the time. Yet she wished the train would go faster, but it was a Taggart comment. The fastest train in the country, she tried to think. But the music remained on in the edge of her mind, and she kept hearing it in full chords, like the implacable steps of something that could not be stopped. She shook her head angrily and jerked her hat off and lighted a cigarette. She would not sleep, she thought. She could last until tomorrow night. The train wheels clicked in an accented rhythm. She was so used to them that she did not hear them consciously, but the sound became a sense of peace within her. When she extinguished her cigarette, she knew that she needed another one, but thought she would give herself a minute, just a few minutes, before she would light it. She had fallen asleep, and she awakened with a jolt, knowing that something was wrong before she knew what it was. The wheels had stopped. The car stood soundless and dim in the blue glow of the night lamps. She glanced at her watch. There was no reason for stopping. She looked out the window. The train stood in the middle of empty fields. She heard someone moving in the seat across the aisle and asked, How long have we been standing? A man's voice answered indifferently, About an hour. The man looked at her, sleepily astonished, because she leaped to her feet and rushed to the door. There was a cold wind outside, an empty stretch of land under an empty sky. She heard weeds rustling in the darkness. Far ahead, she saw the figures of men standing by the engine, and above them, hanging detached in the sky, the red light of a signal. She walked rapidly towards them, past the motionless line of wheels. No one paid attention to her when she approached. The train crew and a few passengers stood clustered under the red light. They had stopped talking. They seemed to be waiting in placid indifference. What's the matter, she asked. The engineer turned, astonished. He questioned, her question had sounded like an order, not like the amateur curiosity of a passenger. She stood, hands in pockets, coat collar raised, the wind beating her hair in strands across herself. Red light, lady, he said, pointing up with his thumb. 
How long has it been on? An hour. We're off the main track, aren't we? That's right. Why? I don't know, the conductor spoke up. I didn't think we had any business being sent off on a siding. That switch wasn't working right, and this thing's not working at all. He jerked his head up at the red light. I don't think the signal's going to change. I think it's busted. Then what are you doing? Waiting for it to change. In her pause of startled anger, the fireman chuckled. Last week, the crack special of the Atlantic Southern got left on the siding for two hours. Just somebody's mistake. This is the Taggart Comet, she said. The Comet has never been late. She's the only one in the country that hasn't said the engineer. There's always a first time, said the fireman. You don't know about railroads, lady, said a passenger. There's not a single system or a dispatcher in the country that's worth a damn. She did not turn or notice him, but spoke to the engineer. If you know that the signal is broken, what do you intend to do? He did not like the tone of authority, and he could not understand why she assumed it so naturally. She looked like a young girl. Only her mouth and eyes showed that she was a woman in her 30s. The dark gray eyes were direct and disturbing as if they could cut through things, throwing the inconsequential out of the way. The face seemed faintly familiar to him, but he could not recall where he had seen it. Lady, I don't intend to, st intend to stick my neck out, he said. He means, said the fireman, that our job's to wait for orders. Your job? is to run this train. Not against a red light. If the light says stop, we stop. A red light means danger, lady, said the passenger. We're not taking any chances, said the engineer. Whoever's responsible for it, he'll switch the blame to all of us if we move. So we're not moving until somebody tells us to. And if nobody does, somebody will turn up sooner or later. How long do you propose to wait? The engineer shrugged. Who is John Galt? He means, said the fireman, don't ask questions nobody can answer. She looked at the red light and at the rail that went off into the black, untouched distance. Proceed with caution to the next signal. If it's in order, proceed to the main track, then stop at the first open office. Yeah, who says so? I do. Who are you? It was only the briefest pause, a moment of astonishment at a question she had not expected, but the engineer looked more closely at her face and in time with her answer, she gasped. Good God, she answered not offensively, merely like a person who does not hear the question offered. Dagny Taggart. Well, I'll be, said the fireman, and then they all remained silent. She went on in the same tone of unstressed authority. Proceed to the main track and hold the train for me at the first open office. Yes, Miss Taggart. You'll have to make up time. You've got the rest of the night to do it. Get the comet in. On schedule. Yes, Miss Taggart. She was turning to go when the engineer asked, If there's any trouble, are you taking responsibility for it, Miss Taggart? I am. The conductor followed her as she walked back to her car. He was saying bewilderedly, but just a seat in a day coach, Miss Taggart? But how come? But why didn't you let us know? 
Had no time to be formal, she smiled easily. Had my own car attached to the number 22 out of Chicago, but got off at Cleveland and number 22 was running late, so I let the car go. The comet came next and I took it. There's no sleeping car space left. The conductor shook his head. Your brother, he, he wouldn't have taken a coach. She laughed. No, he wouldn't have. The men by the engine watched her walking away. The young brakeman was among them. He asked, pointing after her, Who is that? That's who runs Taggart Transcontinental, said the engineer. The respect in his voice was genuine. That's the vice president in charge of operations. When the train jolted forward, the blast of its whistle dying over the field, she sat by the window, lighting another cigarette. She thought, it's cracking to pieces like this all over the country. You can expect it anywhere at any moment. But she felt no anger or anxiety. She had no time to feel. This would be just one more issue to be settled along with the others. She knew that the superintendent of the Ohio division was no good and that he was a friend of James Taggart. She had not insisted on throwing him out long ago only because she had no better man to put in his place. Good men were so strangely hard to find. But she would have to get rid of him, she thought, and she would give his post to Owen Kellogg, the young engineer who was doing a brilliant job as one of the assistants to the manager of the Taggart Terminal in New York. It was Owen Kellogg who ran the terminal. She had watched his work for some time. She had always looked for sparks of confidence like a diamond prospector in an unpromising wasteland. Kellogg was still too young to be made superintendent of a division. She had wanted to give him another year, but there was no time to wait. She would have to speak to him as soon as she returned. I'm going to take a sip of my coffee one second. The strip of earth, faintly visible outside the window, was running faster now, blending into a gray stream. Through the dry phrases of calculations in her mind, she noticed that she did have time to feel something. It was the hard, exhilarating pleasure of action. That's all for this section. We've met Dagny Taggart, one of the greatest female protagonists of all time, and she is everything we hoped she would be. So I'll try to record the next section this weekend. Thanks for listening.